Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome, Brendan here with Mark, episode 163, Friday the 13th, Mark, Friday the 13th of November 2020, and well, I don't know where we can segue from there, Mark, but it is Friday the 13th. Well, I'm going to jump into one quick thing before I forget, because I've forgotten it a couple of times, the country with one listener, one subscriber, Mark, this week is probably somewhere you've been to you've been to so many places around the world Um, not lately though the Faroe Islands have you been to the Faroe Islands I have not been to the Faroe Islands I've heard it's quite a nice place to visit and perhaps we might get there one day so hello to our one person in Faroe Islands please send us an email vetgurus at gmail.com we haven't got one yet, have we? We need we've, we've no been. from all these countries with one people, and we're running out. We've got oh, we've got about half a dozen left to to shout out, and um, I just hope we get a reply from one of these one persons. Um, otherwise, we're going to have to go up the list, and we'll go <laughs> to the countries with two people. <laughs> I'm not going to jump to the country with uh, thousands of people. Um, it's 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 genuinely. Like I, each time we talk about the people who listen to us, it amazes me that um, that uh, they've even listened to one episode. It's yeah, I, I um, would be just over the moon if one of them could send us a message and talk about the reasons for listening and and yeah, but but we've still got a few to go, Brendan. We have, we have, we will cross our fingers and we'll hope that we do get that email from. A country, a country, or more than, or more than one country with one listener. That would be fantastic. Uh, vetgurus.com, the place to go. Um, poke around there. Look at the previous episodes. We have show notes for all of our shows, uh, which are searchable. So you could look for birds, and you will find all the podcasts where we chat about birds as a main topic in there. So that's the place to go. Um, visit the links to our sponsors. We have three main sponsors who help support the show, so it would be great if you help them out. It helps us out as well. And I have a review this week, Mark. Um, do you want me to jump into that? Another review. It. And it is a bit out there this week. It, it's an, it's a board game. <laughs> I thought I'd review a board game, but it is sort of veterinary related. It is called, it's a pretty popular board game. It's called Wingspan. And uh, interestingly enough, it has sold over, I think, 250,000 copies since it was released in 2019. So it was only fairly recently released and it is... Um, it's a beautiful game, Mark, so to speak. Wow. The, the artwork is amazing. And, and basically what it is, it's, it's – it's, and I play it solo because nobody will play with me and there's a, a, a sort of an automatic um, – um, um, Automa, automa, they call it, um, the opposition that you play against. And and basically what you do is you, each round, um, it sounds a bit weird, but each round you can either play a bird, you select birds from the deck, and there's around about 180 birds, and the artwork on these birds are amazing. And the thing that I love about this game is that it does give you a little bit of information about each species. They have the scientific name there, and they have a little fact 
factoid about each bird um, down the bottom. And the way the bird will play in the game relates to what that particular bird does. For instance, the raptors, you have to feed them um, mice, (laughs) for instance, um, or whole animals. And uh, some birds that lay eggs in other birds' nests do exactly that during the game. So you sort of have a few options to do during your turn. You can um, have your birds lay eggs. You can only do one of these um, three or four things. You can play a bird onto the board, which gives you points if it's um, been played. Um, you can you can place it in one of three sort of places, the wetland, the forest, or the grasslands. Um, you can collect food, and they have a cute little bird feeder mark, um, and you collect a bit of grain or a bit of seed or an invertebrate or, or a little mammal. Um, so you've got a toss up between, you know, do I need to feed these birds? Um, Will I get them to lay more eggs? Because each egg that's laid gives you one point at the end of the game. Um, And the sort of skills of each bird um, can can sort of multiply. So, yeah, very, very interesting game. Um, And I've been enjoying it. And the thing that I really like, Mark, is they have just released, and I have ordered it, although I haven't got it yet, is the um, Oceana expansion which includes all the birds from the australasian or oceana area Uh, so i think they give um, an extra 95 bird cards mark including the bin chicken which is um good i think um and the particular skill of the bin chicken is it steals stuff from other birds <laughs> discarded things um, so it's quite good so yeah really interesting game and um, um just a really beautifully designed game and just amazing artwork on them and interestingly enough all the designers and the artwork um, and the play testers for this game are all women um, which makes sense um, that's why it's so beautifully beautifully made um, so yeah wingspan it's called and i have to give it a really solid well eight eight point six out of ten of course it needs to get um so for those of you and i've been learning things about birds mark so you'd be proud of me uh, i am proud of you brendan there's two good things about this the first one is the as you already mentioned the australian um uh um, expansion kit um, and the fact that that Australian expansion yes, kit, yes, um, there's a uh, they, they're offering a donation to the wildlife rescue organisations here. So um, it, it is a um, and it bloody hell, it, I, I'm a bit shocked to learn how popular the game is. But um, crikey, there's a lot of just for being a little bit over a year old, it's a a, a, a widely played game already. Yes, yes, and it's won lots of different awards, and that um, not re- not 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 um, board game awards. <laughs> no, it has. Um, so it's it's done very very well, and yeah, um, I really enjoyed it. So again, uh, something else that you do during during COVID, you you reach out for something a little bit different. And um, I saw this, and I thought, gee, this this looks interesting, and it, and it talks about the ecology of birds and all the. It's um, I think I sent you a bit of an article, Mark, um, that the main designer there, Elizabeth Hargrave, she's been has some articles in the New York Times and even Nature Nature magazine had a little um, or Nature Journal had a uh, little article about her because she's an avid birdo and uh, it talks about how the the um, all these birds that are in the game um, that, that they're 
they've tied them in perfectly with, you know, if it's a for, forest-dwelling bird, that's the only place you can play it, etc. So, um, and all the different nest types. So it's quite accurate as far as the ecology of the animal. So it's a very good game. So, yeah, if you're after a game, um, which I'm sure all of you are, then that's the one that I um, suggest you consider purchasing. I'm looking forward to when we play it next, Brendan. Yes, you'll have to um, next time you're down here, um, as long as you bring your mask, um, we can have a bit of a play of Wingspan and you'll probably kick my butt, Mark. So that's my review this week. Um, I think you want to jump into the first. You've got a couple of news stories this week. What's your first one? They're related news stories, Brendan, but the first one is, well, we you know we've been trying to be more uplifting, more more positive, but I'm afraid I've let the side down with this one because, to be honest, it's a bit depressing. <laughs> the CSIRO, Australia's National Science Agency, um, has just, after doing some survey work in uh, some of the waters around Australia, they've um, prepared a scientific report on the, the uh, global estimate of microplastics on the sea floor, Brendan, and previous... Uh, less qualified estimates um, suggested something, you know, um, about uh, six or seven million tonnes of microplastics in the deep ocean. Um, But um, the real number would appear to be um, more than double that, and the CSIRO have announced um, an estimate of 14 million tonnes of of uh, plastic. These microplastics are, are fragments of plastic um, uh, less than five millimetres long or um, maybe some of the micro beads that are added to some, uh, you know, makeups or um, cleansers. Um, and these uh, microplastics have a huge um, surface area to volume ratio. And as the, the uh, plastics break down naturally, they release a number of organic compounds which have an effect on local life, not to mention the physical way that, you know, they can um, they can obstruct uh, digestive systems and um, through that uh, all the way through different species to affect whole ecosystems. Um, so the interesting thing was that the robotic submarine, um, which collected samples, was three kilometres down uh, nearly 400 kilometres off uh, South Australia. And, um, and yeah, the, some of the uh, locations had 25 times greater uh, microplastic than was expected. Um, so it's a real problem. It's a real depressing problem because it's not showing any uh, major sign of ending. Um, and um, there's still quite a lot of plastic that is in our world that will end up in these locations over the um, next few decades, Brendan. Yes, so they basically extrapolated over those previous studies and the one they did and they worked out that there's a lot, basically. (laughs) There's a lot there, but there's potentially things that could be done to help um, ameliorate it, isn't there, Mark, which you'll talk about (laughs) in your... You're subtle second little little um, article there but i'm going to jump into my my article here and it's well it's sort of a positive one it's negative with a positive sort of spin on it i suppose and that is the risk feral pigs pose to marine turtles and their nests uh here in australia and the federal government is funding indigenous rangers and community groups to cull 
the feral pigs, pigs and other predators and install cages on the beaches to protect the eggs for them. And it's a $28 million funding program that they've rolled out in in association with the Indigenous rangers and community, which is great. And uh, they're trapping and culling the predators, developing fox detector dogs and the use of cages to cover the clutches of eggs. And for those who don't know, marine turtles nest on beaches along the Queensland coast here in Australia and six of the world's seven species of marine turtle live in Queensland or off Queensland and that's the loggerhead, the hawksbill, the olive ridley and leatherback turtles which are all listed as endangered and the green and flatback turtles as well which are vulnerable. Um, so it's a, you know, at least they're putting a bit of money into um, help um, some of these species um, do their thing, Mark. And there's a couple of really, really cute photos in the article. I don't know whether you've seen them there. Um, it's not quite the, the turtle with its middle finger up, but there's a little youngster there hatching out from an egg um, and wandering along the beach there that is is very cute there. So, um, Have you seen those? Have you been anywhere to see those, Brendan? No, I haven't. Have you? Yes, uh, both on the Queensland coast when I, I first graduated say, yes. from high school, um, and more recently in um, in uh, uh, in Borneo, um, we went to uh, a uh, um, a wonderful island uh, near in um, near Sandakan. Where they, uh, excellent, excellent. The closest I've been is I've been to the recovery centre or the treatment centre in in um, Townsville. Um, we we had a bit of a tour when we were up there doing a bit of teaching and um, saw the work they were doing with the recovered animals and the ones that in, ingested plastics. Funnily enough, Mark, um, and you want to chat about that for your second story as well, don't you? Indeed, I do. Returning to that whole plastic story, there is um, uh, the you know, the arc of trying to move away from negative stories. Um, there, there is an enzyme. Um, scientists have discovered an enzyme um, which uh, breaks down the polyethylene that um, constitutes a significant part of the, the plastic, microplastic uh, problem, the, the, particularly the plastics, you know, that we, the sort of uh, soft drink bottle polyethylene um, plastic bottles, the, the, the enzyme will break that down. Um, the problem has been that it is a relatively um, slow acting process and the same scientists have recently um, discovered in the same bacteria, they found this bacteria, um, a rubbish dwelling bacterium that lives on a diet of plastic bottles and as well as the uh, PETAAs, which speed, which um, breaks down the plastic. They've discovered a new one, Brendan. Um, uh, it, it goes under the name of MHETAs, um, and it, when used synergistically with the first enzyme, results in dramatic improvements in the rate, more than doubling the speed of uh, polyethylene breakdown. Um, so. Uh, scientists are now working to engineer a connection between the two enzymes to create a super enzyme. Um, and they suspect this activity will, uh, you know, the, the digestive capacity will increase a further three times. So these giant steps in, in uh, um, breaking down the plastics so that they're no longer a, a threat in the, in the natural world, they, they're, it's bloody awesome but um i just 
as with all these stories, Brenda, my concern is that um, is that the more that science solves these things, the more that people think we don't have to do anything about yes, them to start with. the source of it, yes, exactly. That Whereas was my thought. I'd, I'd appreciate it if we did both, if we actively decreased the amount of plastic and waste in the world and we worked really hard to get rid of the stuff that we've already dumped into the world. Yes, now, I don't know whether you saw, Mark, um, that they mentioned about it in, the, the combination of those two enzymes increases the rate at which it can break down the PET, but did it, it didn't really give figures as to what that was, whether it was, you know, it breaks it down in 10 years <laughs> instead of a 100 or, or 10 days instead of a month or whatever. Um, did you see that from the article or not? Well, it, it suggested that um, uh, the... In, without the enzymes, these bottles take hundreds of years to break down. But the enzyme can, uh, the single enzyme can shorten this time to uh, days. Is the only sort of order Excellent. of magnitude they give. Um, so, but even that's that's outstanding. If they can, um, you know, if, even if there's some scientific literary license exercised here, and it's you know twenty days or something, that's heaps better than hundreds of years. And um, an ongoing research um, working to to synergize these serial enzymes might mean that they could get it down to a relatively short time, um, truly just two or three days, I hope. That would be good. And I, I, can't, I didn't quite get one of the paragraphs there, one of the comments uh, from the most junior authors, Rosie Graham there, Mark. I, um, I don't know whether you saw that quote. My favourite part of the research is how the ideas start, whether it's over coffee on a train commute or when passing in the university corridors. It can really be at any moment. So I don't know what she's trying to say then that there that um, they were having a cup of coffee and they looked at their plastic cup <laughs> and thought, we better do something about this or what. Um, yes. So, no, it is a bit of a potentially a good news end into your bad news story at the start, Mark. But, yes, we need to address the both ends of the spectrum there, don't we, um, stopping that, um, stop in that um, wastage and, and production in the first place or reducing it as well as um, um, dealing with it once it's been produced. Um, well, we should jump into our main topic here, and this is one that we have spoke about a couple of times but not specifically as our main topic, and that is abnormal shedding in reptiles or dissectisis. Um, so good topic, Mark, good choice there that you sent to me um, earlier on today, was it, or yesterday? I can't remember. Um, or half an hour ago, 10 minutes ago. Um, so excellent topic. So um, I think we'll just work through the, the process of um, the shed process in reptiles. And um, for those vets and technicians, nurses who don't deal with reptiles very much. Um, ectisis is the, the normal shed or skin production or normal shedding and, and dysectisis is abnormal shed. So do you want to chat about, Mark, the different ways in which the groups of reptiles shed their skin? Um, For sure. One piece versus non-one piece, etc. You set me up so well. Um, and uh, it's a, a good, quick, punchy uh, discussion to be had. Um, almost all the, the um, uh, species of reptiles that uh, we get to deal with, except for the snakes, tend to break, you know, come away in, in uh, the skin tends to come away in little pieces um, and is shed in segments. Uh, 
um, most of the animals that have big broad scales or uh, like turtles, the, the scales on their shells or snakes' bellies, those, sna- those larger scales will come away in one piece. Um, uh, and um, snakes are unique in their cylindrical structure, tubular structure. They um, literally start to peel their skin off around their lips and then turn it inside, crawl out of it and turn it inside out like a, like a sock. Um, and so any, any that where we have a snake who um, doesn't have that complete single uh, piece of skin turning inside out, we start to worry that maybe there's some reason that it's coming apart piecemeal. But in those other species, the lizards and turtles, it is pretty normal for it to, uh, for the, the skin to come apart in, come away from the animal in pieces. And what about our chelonians, our turtles and tortoises? Um, do they shed in particular different ways than what you spoke about there or not? Well, they do definitely shed in almost the same way, but it, obviously it's put through the, uh, the, the unique circumstance of their body shape. So they definitely um, shed the skin that's uh, over their, their, their neck, their head, their their feet, all those parts of the bodies will shed. Um, and, of course, the the large scales um, that cover the bony carapace and plastron, um, they're shed as a single unit. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, it, it's a, um, a, a process that is uh, consistent across all reptilia um, but has its unique characteristics which with each of the... Uh, the, the different families. Absolutely. And probably one of the first questions we get from new clients is how often will my reptile shed or how often should it shed? And my answer is it depends. <laughs> it's always, it depends. Um, and it depends on a lot of things, doesn't it, Mark? It depends on the obvious um, age of the animal. So a, a rapidly growing species that's grown um, very quickly and enlarging very quickly will um, shed more frequently than one that's reached its sort of um, towards its adult sort of size and only grown very slowly. It depends on the environment that you're keeping that animal, and and that's one of the sort of giveaways for this um, this particular main topic. One one of the most common causes of dysectiasis, if not the most common cause, is inadequate hu- or inappropriate husbandry, as we have with a lot of our problems in our reptiles. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it does depend. Um, but on average, some some snakes, for instance, may um, routinely shed um, regularly every every few months um, for an adult and, and others that may be even less less off less often than that as well any comments you'd like to make on the shedding periodicity mark no well the only other comment you sort of alluded to the fact that um, environmental circumstances play a role and so it's often not a uniform thing across the year so uh, uh, an animal yes. that goes into brumation may go the whole of the winter not shedding and then um, as their metabolism picks up through the warmer months of the year, they'll, they'll do it much more regularly. So not only there's not just a unique um, time depending on the size, the age, the metabolic rate, but, um, but also on those environmental factors. So it is a difficult question to give a numerical answer to. You are correct. Yes. And 
it's not uncommon at all. In fact, it's, <laughs> it is common um, for a reptile that's undergoing a shed, especially the snakes, to be anorexic during that period. So um, we commonly have clients phoning up and saying, my snake has not eaten and it just happens to be in a shed cycle, an ecdysis cycle. So what's the typical sort of look and the process, Mark, that the client will see or an owner will see if their snake, if we stick with snakes for a moment, um, is going through a shed phase, a normal shed? What do they see and how did, um, what does it look like as it goes through that process? Well, the typical appearance is that the the normally glossy, shiny, colourful scales become dull and and often develop a milky appearance to them um, as lymph is injected into a cleavage plane between the old and new skin. And this happens in snakes. It's most interesting because uh, of the eyelid, the transparent eyelid is shed as well. And so uh, the eyes of the snake will become not clear but milky. Um, that usually happens between 10 and 14 days. Um, you know, uh, the cleavage starts to happen 10 to 14 days before the actual shed. But then as you get closer to the shed, there's often a period of time where everything goes clear for a day or two and then the animal um, uh, will crawl out of its skin, out of its old skin. Um, so the main thing you see, the main thing that clients talk to us about is that milky appearance, particularly in their snakes, looking at their eyes. And what do we see with those eyes then? You there? What do, what do we see with the eyes? Yes. So you mentioned about the milky bit. So how how quickly, um, you know. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> You've got an answer and you're trying to find the question. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll back, backtrack there. I'll backtrack. <laughs> let's go back to, let's, now let's, uh, so there's the normal ectosis. Let's call that a, a, a very, very brief su- summary of the normal shedding cycle. Um, yeah. But let's talk about, Dissectisis, shedding problems. Yes, shedding problems. So when it goes wrong, what what is that reptile presented with? And the classic one there we we mentioned about they're often they're not happy and, and anorexic um, or not going through their normal um, feeding phase when when they're having a trouble shed. Um, but we get patchy sheds with with snakes. So we get retained sheds, and the classic spot that we get the retained shed with the snakes is around those eye caps or those spectacles there and uh, over time if it has an ongoing desectisis and it has a further shed weeks or months down the track um, we may end up with layer upon layer of retained spectacles or eye scales there so um, what is your approach to these ones if you have that phone call mark if you're if your um, nursing staff reception staff have a call my my reptile um, is having trouble shedding what do i do what's the answer to them over the phone well it's a, a, there's two answers brendan the first one is um you know the more general um, my reptiles having trouble shed but those uh, retained spectacles um, they present a unique problem and and the first thing um, that I don't want clients to do is try and pick them off. Um, it is, first of all, very easy to confuse a shed. You know, a shed may, um, they're, look, they're looking at the, the, the skin and they see around the head that there's no 
um, there's been no spectacle attached to the normal skin and the rest of the skin is all broken up and they assume that it's still on the eye and they get the fine forceps out and start poking around the edge only to find that the snake had subsequently, after the primary shed had rubbed the, the spectacle off and they've been scratching directly at the, uh, at the new um, spectacle. And in some instances, we've had people remove those um, you know the the spectacle exposing the cornea. Yes. So, and I think I think one of the key things I always say is it's 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 don't treat like an emergency. Take your time with with um, workup of these, and take your time even when you you as a veterinarian or the clinic are seeing these these animals with the retained sheds. Um, you don't have to get it off on that particular. Day that it comes in for the consultation, um, we can we can slowly work at it, um, and well, that's the way I approach these ones anyway. And I no. explain to the client the approach of, of gently um, softening. If we if we talk about the spectacle, for instance, um, that's retained, softening it with um, it can just be something as simple as warm water, holding a um, a cotton ball um, soaked in in warm water over it for for a few minutes and softening up that spectacle that's retained and then gently gently rubbing it or gently picking at the edge of it to see if it's coming up or peeling away and if it looks like it is great if if you don't get very far with it you can try again the next day and i often initially if it's not too disastrous or, or multiple retained sheds uh, uh show to the client how to do that process and tell them, look, do that every day for several days. Do some warm water baths and, and some sort of steam type therapy as well to sort of hydrate or or soften up the, the retained shed on that um, reptile and take your time. And then we'll have another look at it in a week or so. Um, and we also concentrate on all the other aspects of the husbandry that might have resulted in the abnormal shed in the first place. Precisely. And look, at you, you're hit the nail on the head as usual brendan time is not of the essence and we've definitely had some snakes who have um uh, uh retained spectacles but it's not until the next shed that that spectacle comes off and um and uh and as long as we're closely monitoring it as you know there's no if there's not an active problem there then then certainly you can cause more problem by trying to aggressively intervene the, yes. Um, what, what are the sort of one of the things I always you you were talking before about um, uh, husbandry. One of the things I find interesting about this ectosis in reptiles is that there is something that we do see occasionally in uh, in wild animals, um, and I think it has to do with um, uh, you know the stress of uh, maybe um, environmental stress. Uh, um, I, the whole process is. Um, hormonally driven uh, primarily by thyroid but also a number of other hormones and I wonder sometimes whether some of those wild ones are the result of um, you know various potential tumors or whatever that uh, interfere with that hormonal problem but it is predominantly a disease of captivity yes there are some predisposing um, uh, conditions that might set it off what what have you seen any particular the one i'm thinking of uh, well you just said it might yeah <laughs> reptile mites tried to uh, give you all the clues 
Yes, you did. A bit too obvious there, Mark. Um, and that's one that may be causing it in those wild ones as well. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you have heavy infestations of the reptile mite in some of those wild reptiles that they're going to struggle with their with their shedding process there. Yes, yeah, so that's the first thing I think of, and I'm sure it's often the first thing you'd think of, Mark, for the for the pet ones in that they have they do have the do they have an infestation of the reptile mite? And we have done a separate podcast on, on reptile mites and the process and the treatment and the fact that it does tend to induce an abnormal shedding cycle. And, I, and, and my theory, and I think the process behind that, is that the animal is, is itchy. It's got these blood-sucking parasites, the reptile mite, and it's trying to get rid of them. And apart from trying to soak in the water bowl, um, in the enclosure, which is a, a bit of a key giveaway for, for mite infestation in, in snakes especially. Um, they don't have legs, these snakes, and um, so they can't scratch, so they're trying to rub against things, and they they, they go into the shedding cycle to try and help get rid of these mites. Um, but because we've got these mites attached to the animal in various um, positions and spots, then it struggles um, to, to do a normal shed um, when it goes into that early shed compared to normal. So mites is definitely the big one to think about and you should always think about the reptile mite when you have an abnormal shed, especially especially in those um, snakes. What else do we think about, Mark? Well, I was going to emphasise the need to, during that time that you're taking to observe things, just because I think there is a pattern, whether it's mites, but even other systemic illnesses will start to influence uh, the variety of hormones that influence shedding. And so an animal that's presented with dissectosis may well have some much more significant systemic illness, a serious infection or um, maybe even a tumour that's led to those altered hormones and then we're looking at the problem on the outside. So I encourage everyone who does this to uh, to look at reptiles with this problem, to just keep an open mind to predisposing factors um, as well as those husbandry issues. Yes. So speaking of other husbandry issues, what, what jumps to your mind initially when we have dissectiasis, Mark? Well, the, 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 um, the usual array. The, the, the first thing is appropriate temperatures, um, if the animal isn't given the opportunity to uh, hold its body temperature at its preferred optimal temperature zone, um, then it will end up uh, with altered metabolism and, and the shed cycle is one of the first things that are affected. Um, so uh, temperatures first. A humidity gradient, we often talk about thermal gradients in reptile enclosures, but um, many of the enclosures that I've seen are universally low in their humidity and trying to design an enclosure so that there are um, locations therein where the, the reptile can position itself with uh, appropriate humidity for its skin um, is very important. So often some form, for many snakes, we talk about a humidity box, which may just be a, um, you know, a plastic shoe box with um, some peat or sphagnum moss, something that's sterilizable, um, moistened, um, changed regularly so that uh, fungus and whatnot can't build up on it. Um, but the snake can crawl in there and, uh, and sit on a relatively moist pile of um, 
of moss and uh, humidify its skin. Um, so a humidity gradient as well as a thermal gradient. Um, and exercise, Brendan. Um, I find that those animals that are more sedentary um, run into problems with uh, particularly reptiles, particularly snakes. They almost switch metabolism and they'll, their circulation will change, um, their um, uh, muscle strength changes, uh, blood flow changes, and, uh, of course, the, um, they end up with issues with particular arrangements of their skin that can interfere with, uh, with the normal shedding process. So it's the usual suspects. Um, yes, and <clears throat> the follow-up question that a lot of vets would be then saying is, how do I know what is the humidity or the temperature that I need to keep this particular species at? And the answer there is it depends. <laughs> it, it's phone a friend, it, it's look it up, it's it's go to VIN, it's go to your resources, um, talk to another vet who with experience in reptiles um, or the commonly kept reptiles, speak to the herpetological clubs um, because there's no one answer for, for that. Um, for all species is their mark um, with, with um, them, even if we just combine it to the snakes and not the lizards and the chelonians and the, the other reptiles there. So um, it does depend. But your point about having a gradient is 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 a great point there. Yeah, it's like most things in that vivarium, we want to have a gradient which ideally includes humidity as well so that animal can select the appropriate humidity to help it during that um, shedding cycle so what's our other sort of treatment or our workup for the mark you, um, these this reptile that comes in abnormally shedding and, and you did sort of hint or mention that we can have un, other underlying systemic or or metabolic type diseases going on there so ideally we should be considering looking at the broader picture and, and perhaps doing full bloods etc on them to look for any other underlying organ dysfunction um any other sort of general workup um, tips or, or points, Mark? You would you would um, you would suggest apart f um, apart from then going on to the treatment aspects, which we sort of touched on a bit anyway. I think um, just the main thing is a, a good close examination with some magnification and illumination, and being aware of you know. Uh, gently manipulating the scales so that you get a view between them. As we said before, looking for mites, looking for evidence of inflammation of dermatitis, which may not always be apparent on a cursory examination. Um, and, um, and yeah, I think uh, identifying those changes to the skin in the first instance um, is probably the, the most important. Then, of course, you're right, looking for uh, blood tests that might indicate systemic illness or thyroid problems, um, that's the next phase, if you like. Yes. So apart from any any sort of tips or tricks as far as the actual process of, of removing that retained shed, and we've, we've sort of mentioned just... just being gentle, taking your time, um, using simple things like warm water, etc. Any sort of other products that you recommend, Mark? Uh, well, you will see lots of people talk about um, various uh, yes. um, oils shed, or shed ease was yeah. one of the products that was recommended. And I think at one stage that was really just a variation of really dilute um, hydrogen peroxide, Mark. At least one of the products was. And look, Brendan, I think that. Um, that there's very little evidence uh, that anything besides um, I didn't hum get that. him. Could you try again? 
what is going on with Siri? Where did you get that? Could you try that? <laughs> you were saying, Mark? Yes. Um, I was saying that um, uh, Siri didn't tell me the answer. Um, <laughs> we would. You were talking about other treatment techniques about oh, yes. these topical sort of products. Um, and I think um, that I was saying that the evidence for using anything besides um, warm water is fairly thin on the ground. We have, I have personally at times tried to use things like uh, skin moisturising creams, vitamin A creams, lanolin, things like this. But I honestly, Brendan, can't tell you that it makes a in my experience, a significant difference. And I think um, uh, that repeated um, uh, humidifying warm water, uh, whether that the reptiles have a swim in it um, and that movement tends to help. Well, most commonly where I, I simply get a towel, um, soak it in some warm water and then uh, allow the reptile to yes. hide in it, making sure they can breathe. That's the only other. I have read a couple of circumstances where people use, um, uh, you know, snake bags that have been wet, um, tie them off and put the, put the snake in and tie them off and then um, the snake can't breathe. So making sure they can breathe but covering them all over otherwise um, and allow it then once... Uh, They've sat there for a while, encouraging them to crawl, crawl through or slither through the folds of the towel seems to help significantly. Yes, and I agree completely. And I've even had, there used to be a bit of a craze with putting oil over um, or on snakes, um, not just for the dissectiasis, but also and olive oil and, and variations on those sorts of oils and even for even more so for reptile mite treatment mark and um i don't know about you but when when i had clients that brought in snakes that they smothered their snake in olive oil that you ended up with a um a very severe dissectiasis then because they would be shedding bits of scales for 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 weeks if not months and almost like um it's almost like handling a, a fish from the market um, when you're getting scales all over you there. Um, so it's a bit of a disaster there. So, yes, I agree with you. Just just keep it simple. Um, warm water, um, gentle towels are great. I know, like um, the the, um, and that's what I encourage clients to do at home to help ease a shed off an animal is to is to gently bathe um, the animal and then um, use a um, a wet towel to to gently help as well to, to soften up that retained shed. And I suppose we should talk about a couple of conditions before we finish up with the dissectiasis in some of the other species like the lizards um, and particular um, toes, Mark, um, where we can have a retained shed around the base of a toe um, and we, if it's not addressed um, we can end up with a with a constriction there like put in an elastic band around the toe and you end up with that toe falling off so I really um, encourage my clients especially for some of the species that are prone to it and here in Australia the one that I see most commonly that has retained sheds that can potentially cause toe issues are the are the skinks mark the blue tongue lizards etc uh, and the shinglebacks um, and uh, be interested to see whether or not you've had the same problem um, so I really um, stress to the clients about when your when your lizard is going through a shedding cycle that you pay particular attention to those toes and the tail tips as well exactly what we see the um it's it's an interesting thing because i think um the tourniquet effect 
um, and the accumulation of dead keratin provides an excellent environment for uh, dermatophilus, which we've cultured from a number of the the uh, the, the toes that are approaching um, self amputation. Um, but I think you've the, you've hit the nail right on the head again in that um, the original problem is those retained sheds and the constrictions they cause, which then alter blood flow and allow other pathogens to. Uh, accelerate the problem. So I'm the same as you. I, I emphasise to people that have um, particularly the the um, Taliqua, the blue tongues and uh, shinglebacks, and particularly um, the uh, um, I've seen this more in the newer colour mutations as well, Brendan. I emphasise to the owners of those animals that they do need to be fastidious in their attention to the toe shed. Yes. Well, we are in agreement, as, as we often are there, Mark. Any final thoughts before we leave our listeners to get back to work? Um, any comments about shedding? No? No, just just um, uh, this time of year, so I mentioned it to you because we see quite a fair bit of it, and I really love your takeaway message that, um, that uh, you've got to encourage both veterinarians who look at this and clients who see it as a problem that, uh, you know, we're, there's no urgency to get it immediately right and we're more likely to cause problems if we leap in and do things quickly. We want to just work at it slow and steady and, and each time they get a bit of skin off, um, they should be patient before they, you know, they don't have to get it all off in one go. Just like our podcast, Mark, we'll get it right one day and we'll just go, slow and steady and i'll put the outro back on again and we'll talk to you all next week thanks for listening thanks for listening to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more you can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.